to Movies and Tea. I'm your host as always, Elwood Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Miss Kim Love. Hello. On tonight's uh, episode, we continue our season-long look at female directors of note as we uh, move on to We Need to Talk About Kevin from 2011, directed by Lynn Ramsey, a, a psychological thriller drama starring Tilda Swindon. In a role which she should have won an Oscar for, but unfortunately failed to be recognised by both the by the Academy. Co-starring uh, John C. Riley and also Ezra Miller. Um, here, Swin- Tilda Swindon plays a acclaimed travel writer, now turned recluse, after her son commits a massacre at his high school, and uh, now forced into her current situation as she looks back on the events leading up to that fateful day. So, Kim, I mean, obviously, slight change of pace this uh, time <laughs> round from the films we've obviously looked at uh, previously. Lynn Ramsey, uh, the uh, Scottish director, uh, this being her third feature film, um, having previously directed uh, Ratcatcher in 1999 and Morvan Silla in 2002. Uh, she had originally been attached to direct The Lovely Bones, only to clash frequently with the producers who had wanted a version more faithful to the novel than uh, the one she had been planning and hence causing her to refer to the project as the lovely money which uh, ultimately saw it being removed from the project and the film being given to Peter Jackson who was uh, more than willing to uh, give the producers a version of the film that they wanted leading to much critical disdain um, from people who saw it but it did obviously lead her to direct this film instead based on the uh, Lionel Shriver novel and certainly when the novel came out this was one of those bu- books that uh, everyone seemed to be buying at the time it was just uh, one that everyone seemed to be wanting to pick up and it's um, despite that it was one I didn't actually look at until the film came out and uh, there was something about this film be it uh, the fact it was Tilda Swinton in a leading role uh, or just the concept of uh of a film that was questioning can a child really be born bad uh, that really sort of intrigued me so when I saw this I actually went back and read the book and uh, I have to say this is actually a very good adaptation of a a very good book so opening thoughts on this one Kim because obviously this isn't uh, the lightest of films to say the least and certainly when we look at uh, Ramsey she's a very uh, on the nose style of director she doesn't tend to do things very subtly she just tends to just make um uh, uh, so tends to just sort of put it all out there and uh, in particular the color red featuring ever so prominently here right from the start and throughout but um what's your opening thoughts on there uh, we need to talk about kevin i think we need to talk about kevin is well, obviously, it's it's a heavy content, um, but at, at the same time, it's it's a movie that I think every time I watch it, the one thing that I have, I think the most is really, it's a movie that really lingers in your mind afterwards because of just how it ends and, like, it, you're thinking a lot about Kevin as a character, whether, like, whether he is supposed to be he was affected by, I don't know, trying to win his mom's attention in this really drastic way or, or whether, like, whether it's a nature or nurture verse, uh, type of thing or, like, what's his purpose behind the whole thing? Because, you know, obviously, uh, we're at the end, we're going to talk about it more. Um, 
there's never really a clear answer as to why he does it. Um, it, it's really, there's a lot of, I think, I think if you talked about subtleties, I think it's really the story subtleties of how it's laid out that really brings the, you know, it, it's like slowly we start realizing that it's about his son being part of, uh, a massacre, right? At school. But when we first start, we don't know. We just know that she's getting a lot of grief over a lot of things. We see, you know, scenes from the back the, like at the end, we finally have all the pieces get put together because the story is intriguing because it kind of moves between the past where she recalls these events to the present. And then you constantly have these scenes that pop up, which are very disturbing, which is just sirens and things like that. And I think I think one of the big things about this movie is really how it uses sound, like just using the sound around that that's very effective for the scenes whether it's like focusing on water sprinkler in the beginning or or whether it's the siren sound but everything's very there isn't really like a subtle soundtrack in the background there is like a soundtrack where the songs if you i was actually looking up all these songs that was <laughs> playing during the movie and it was just like the song titles actually match the scenes really well <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the soundtrack itself is a combination of um, scored by Johnny Greenwood, who's uh, the band Radiohead, and at the same time, it's a lot of ragtime blues that the film sort of punctuates itself with and even randomly throws in uh, pieces of, uh, of, of traditional Asian music in there just to sort of really play up her sort of background um is until the Swindler's character Eva to this person who's originally had this sort of lust for life and travel and culture and is now was sort of forced as a result of motherhood into being living a more grounded uh, life and ultimately one of a recluse after her son's actions. So the soundtrack itself is really kind of weird. It goes from as you from the sort of ambient sort of moments uh to the sort of more soundtrack those sort of more random sort of like blues elements that uh, feature throughout and it's i'm not sure it's the sort of soundtrack i would sort of like <laughs> go out and buy specifically but it's there's certainly got some interesting bits and pieces in there certainly yeah i mean i wouldn't go and buy it but i think that in the like sometimes like say during a scene or something is going on um and then you have, like, Buddy Holly's Everyday Plays. And it doesn't really match the this, this situation. Like, it's, it's one of the songs which really stands out in that scene because it's not something that matches the tone of the movie. It actually turns into this really, like, happy, happy thing. And the story is anything but. I mean, she really, really struggles with her relationship with her son. Right from being a baby up to up to being older and it's something that we never understand why right because in some ways we the the relationship between kevin and tilda swinton's character eva is very uh is it, kind of a little baffling uh just because in some ways it feels like he wants her attention and I don't know, maybe her love, because there's a lot of times where he points out where 
she's she's used to him that that was what he used in in one of the scenes is that she's used to him but doesn't mean that she likes him so there's a difference between that because when she's explaining about having a younger a younger sister she can he can he can get used to it but he doesn't have to like it yeah i mean certainly when it comes to 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 eva's relationship with with kevin i mean it's right from the the start is a very sort of detached relationship that uh, she has initially that you assume it's a case it's down to the fact that she's perhaps postnatally depressed or the fact that she's now been because we see her throughout uh, her pregnancy when she's at uh, the prenatal classes and all the other mothers are there with the bumps and all happy and all glowing and she just feels very detached from the situation and even when she's sort of thrust into into motherhood she ha- finds that right from the start she has this almost combative relationship with with kevin i mean he cries incessantly when uh, when he's uh around her but at the same time is perfectly happy when he's around her fa- um his father and this is a relationship that only continues to deteriorate as it goes on as he become becomes like a a toddler um he actively resists like to be educated and toilet training and as he gets like a seven or eight years and he's still in in um in in nappies and he proves himself that he's a very intelligent and aware child and you feel the fact that he many of the things he's doing is just to continue this combative relationship that he has with his mother um to the point that she's just constantly being broken down as a, a parent to the point even to the point where she sort of loses it after he intentionally soils himself um and leading her to throw him, throw him against the wall breaking his arm and he he tells his father that you know he fell um only because it's manipulates the relationship that he has with uh, Eva all the more into basically keeping her under his control so whether he's for his behavior or through this secret that the two have between them now he's just constantly pushing her buttons uh, frequently and it only sort of gets worse the more um, the older he gets and sort of like those real sort of uh, psychotic tendencies that Kevin really start to show themselves so yeah, but at the same time, you know, we have that scene in the middle where he he suddenly changes when he's sick, right? And then she's taking care of him, and then he starts being very dependent on her. But it, it's kind of confusing because, you know, right after he gets better, he's back to normal. Like, he's back to his, I don't know, his his, his rude child self you know (laughs) yeah i mean certainly when he gets sick it's that that desire to um to be to be nurtured to be looked after um and it's sort of like the sort of maternal the instinct is to is is to go to to your mother provides that sort of caring uh nurturing self that that you sort of uh, crave when you're when you're sick your father's there sort of like more for the guidance 
And I assume that was the reason that he sort of reverts into actually being a good child when he's sick and obviously reverts right back as soon as he gets better. Because let's face it, I mean, he's an absolute... He's an absolute little shit right from from the start. I mean, this is what brings into question. It's like, can a child truly be born bad? And certainly when it comes to the case of Kevin, you can't help but feel that that this is the case. It's not so much the case of the environment he's being brought up in. Um, it's just his actual nature. But then you think about it, and you're you think about it, and we 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 fast forward, right? The incident is over. He goes, she goes to visit him. We're at the ending scene, and he he originally knows what he why he does it, and then suddenly when she asks him again, like why, he's like, I thought I knew, but now I'm not too sure. And then you wonder whether there was something a little deeper. It's not something just because if you think about a lot of the things that Kevin does. It's a lot of things that stem from, I feel like, in some ways, maybe how he was, like, how she resisted him. Because a lot of times, I don't know, I mean, at least Chinese people believe it, that uh, that if you're, if you're, like, if you're resisting this, a child, they'll feel it. And then when, when they, when they are born, they will be, like, a grumpy child, like, it'll have effects on them type of thing. I don't know how accurate that is. It might be just a stupid, you know, stupid, <laughs> stupid little belief. Uh, but in his case, it really feels like he resists the fact that his mom doesn't like him. But that, you know, she wants to be traveling. She doesn't want to be taking care of him. She kind of, he resists, she resists her a lot. Resists him a lot about this whole bringing him up. She's... She doesn't, she doesn't, you know, but then you can't really blame her because in one way she kind of feels like this, this kid has just been horrible to me. <laughs> so certainly, yeah, I mean, no, I get, totally get what you're saying when you, when the child's, she has that moment where she sort of snaps. Um, and I think this is, this is the thing when I saw the, I saw the film when it first came out back in 2011. And this is probably one of the first times I've revisited it since. Yeah. And obviously being, becoming a parent and stuff, you tend to view it, it viewing it in a completely different light than I did perhaps back then um, where it was sort of more on the surface level and then when you obviously you experience go through what she has as a parent I mean it's certainly you can understand many of the situations that she faces where she has that moment where she absolutely breaks down it's sort of like has that uh, never wish you'd been born it's sort of like if you weren't been born I'd be in France and this she this sort of longing for this alternate life of what it, her life used to be, and I think this is certainly transposed really well at the start, where we see her at the um, the La Tomatolina uh, festival, the big uh, tomato fight um, festival that they have in Spain, and we see her sort of like she, on this like amazing travel experience, and then it's intercut with her life now where she's basically living this life where she's basically keeps herself sane through like alcohol and pills and she her house is like constantly being vandalized by people throwing paint over a car and a house and you're not sure why people are being so mean to her when you're sort of seeing it but it's sort of like you can there's all the even as this life she's living now as a recluse, there's still this sort of longing for the life that she had, where you know she was this respected and acclaimed travel writer. Mm -hmm. 
And now she basically works in a travel agent. It's such a, a downfall her life's taken, and it's sort of like when we like look at uh, what Kevin did. I mean, was this the, the ultimate plan, like to really just destroy his mother's mother's life completely by doing this, knowing that he was like leaving her as this the person who was going to be left to pick up the pieces of this of his actions? Because certainly when he's like interviewed on tv about uh, after the first anniversary of the massacre he's like very um he's just like playing playing it up for the cameras he's sort of like about like speaks really cryptically about how everyone's just basically watching um watching people like like him um that is all about the attention and it shows very little sort of remorse, and obviously people wanting someone to feel remorse for his action have just basically transposed all the rage onto um, his mother, which provides so many mo fascinating moments throughout throughout the film of just how these people treated. Like she's going to lunch, and then suddenly she gets like slapped in the face. She goes to the supermarket and comes back to find all her eggs have been trashed, and um, <laughs> it's it's just like, I think this is what's so great about the film when you watch it the first time because you're not sure why these people are just so yeah so mean to her and then when you watch it like the second time you obviously know why um all these sort of things are are, are happening to her but at the same time she sort of like takes it upon herself that uh, this is her burden to carry she never you know tries to uh pin anything on her son she still carries this but this responsibility for him even though after everything he puts her through this movie is more I think it's hard it's not so much that you look at I think that you know Lynn Ramsey had a really you know when she picked up this project it's it's such a great project because the source material itself is so good there's so much discussion point in this it, like I mean I'm not like if you think about the just how I don't know I actually think she executes the movie pretty well just like with the actors and at the same time just how she structures everything so it's revealed it's like you said like the first time you watch it it is a big surprise and i think the biggest surprise is you don't notice those little details of like um the second this time i was looking and i realized that the people that they meet in the that she meets in the street like a slaps her and then you know, breaks her eggs and all this stuff yeah they end up being like in the scene right after is the person that's crying and then you don't know what happens right and at the same time you start seeing you know the these little images start putting together obviously we don't get the big picture until the end when we have that final kind of scene of of you know she's she all these pieces are finally put together and we have that whole scene about you know him just being you know just finally they the cops cut through the locks and then whatever and then they come out and it it's as you watch I don't know. I think as you watch Kevin's character transform, I guess, throughout the film, at the same time you're watching Eva's character transform throughout the film. It's interesting to see how, I guess, just how how they've adapted to the situation, I guess. In some ways, I mean, at the end, she's really come to terms with with Kevin and what he's done. And I think it's just, at this point, it's, he's all she has at this point yet she has no one else and you know especially just like just like the co-worker being very 
rude to her at the Christmas party <laughs> about no one wanting her anymore. I think it's something that wakes her up in that sense where she realizes that, you know, no matter what he's done, he he's still her son, her responsibility, and she's still taking all the crap for him outside of the jail, right? Oh, definitely so, and I think it's this is a film with, with uh, no matter what she she does, it's the, every time she seems to get this like little glimpse of happiness, like when she gets a job at the travel agency and she thinks that she's basically settling into a sort of normal-ish routine when she's like at the Christmas party and she seems actually happy for the first time in, in the film. And then she bustles her co-worker's um, attempts to pick her up and basically he just like says to her, you know, it's like, do you think anyone else is really going to ever want you? Which is just like kind of dark. But this is, I mean, this whole Christmas party is really kind of out there to begin with because it seems that everyone in the office is hooking up with each other. <laughs> and they got this Christmas cake where an elf seems to be having his way with Father Christmas, which I have no idea where they got that ornament from. But somebody, somebody's there putting their cigarettes out in the cake as well. So. <laughs> It, they are, I don't know if it's like a real sort of uh, representation of, how, of what sort of people these are or just like everyone's just really trash but there's also a, a shot of a, the guy who we see earlier who's like DJing with the headphones on and we see him outside the building again and he's still got the headphones on he's dancing away and it's like what are you dancing to? <laughs> um, it makes no sense. <laughs> I don't know I, th- I feel like that guy's kind of like your little slice of comedy type of thing just to let, like liven things up a little because the movie's such a such heavy such a heavy heavy content but you know i, I know think, i think another head scratcher of this is is the fact that is the fact that i think what makes things worse in reality for their relationship is really how eva is different to kevin as she is different to um celia her the younger daughter yeah. <clears throat> so I don't. I don't know. I, I. I feel like. I feel like Kevin's a a little shit. Okay, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. He's 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 pretty bad. But at the same time, well, is he is he really like what people? What is he like a sociopath? I I really don't think he is though. Because if if it was the case, he wouldn't feel. I feel like maybe there's a little bit of remorse at the end. Uh, maybe a little bit, or maybe. But then is he just manipulating her? But then, oh, definitely, Kevin is a sociopath or a psychopath. Even um, excuse my lack of psychology understanding of the uh, difference between the two. Because I mean, you can obviously be a psychopath and not kill people. It's all about the interest yeah. in self. Um, and I think when you use the introduction of, this, the, of his young sister Celia, it removes the idea that this is a child who's being created by his home environment because she's the complete opposite i mean she's lively yeah. and cheerful and full of life and and when you look she's been raised in the same environment that kevin is but in Kevin's reality life. in reality if you think about it is it because if you think about it maybe dad is the same dad treats both of the kids the same and in, in fact dad actually prefers kevin because it's the boy thing right you know got boys i can teach him bow and arrow which is wild uh, and then, and then. <laughs> so you said that's wild. I, I guess we had just a different childhood, so. I don't know. 
<laughs> I want to learn bow and arrow I grew up now. in the country, so <laughs> I, don't want, I, I never wanted to learn bow and arrow when I was a kid. But I actually had, I actually have been recently thinking about learning bow and arrow, like <laughs> so, um, like archery, learning archery. Yeah. But, uh, but at the same time, I mean, but if you think about Celia, Celia, she's less hostile towards her. Like Eva, like the mom is much less. She's she's a lot more doting and caring and willingly takes her out to places and it's a different. But, I mean, vibe. you you gotta remember. I mean, the fact that she probably not put her mother through the same thing that Kevin did when he was growing up. Yeah, exactly. The fact that she had to like he just cried incessantly, so still she had to like send tonight to the pneumatic drill. <laughs> um, to sort of drown out his 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 cries and. <clears throat> the film does a really good job of like eliminating a lot of these sort of causes. I mean, is it the home environment? No, because Celia grows up in the same environment as she's saying. Is it because he's like, um, is he like um, autistic and like? And it's like no, because the doctor does the test early on, and we because uh, she assumes that he maybe have hearing problems. Yeah. That's why he ignores her, and it's like no, all the every single thing that gets like eliminated. And it's really once we get into teenager Kevin that we start to really get the insight into the psyche and certainly Eva attempts to connect with him and tries to meet him on the ground because she obviously goes like the traditional good parent role route and he just rebuts it it's all like oh you can have us create a special room when she like makes her office with uh, all the maps from her travels mm-hmm. and Kevin destroys it mm-hmm. and with we get into teenage Kevin and she like decides you know I'm just going to take a completely different slant and I'm going to meet Kevin on his level so she takes him to play mini golf and she openly disparages the fat people at the uh, mini golf thing and it's sort of like she's trying to get inside the sort of psyche of him and it takes him off off guard but you know obviously once um, they go to dinner he sort of like pretty much just like lays out water her whole plan would have been and just like belittles her over over dinner uh, which just sort of really I think if if anyone seen sort of truly outlined his true nature I think that was the one that definitely did it I mean he's the person who just cares nothing about anyone else's emotion he cares only for himself Um, and at the same time he's so he's become so um, adept at hiding what he's truly thinking within himself because he tries to like go for his room and find clues about what he's thinking or what he's doing and only ma- in in turn manages to like fry her computer and most of her work computers as well through um a computer virus disc he leaves lying around with like um uh this sort of like i love you message on it so it sort of like throws off and and makes her uh so want to see what it is only for it to like as i said just to fry all her computers so <laughs> So I think when it comes to Kevin, I mean, he's when it, once we get to that teenage thing, and I think it's a real sort of credit to uh, Ezra Miller, who obviously plays teenager Kevin Oldman, who just really sort of nails the psyche of this character. And we have that wonderful moment when she goes to the prison on Christmas Day, and then there's the other mother who I'm assuming is in a similar situation. She's there to see her criminal child. 
Uh, we don't know what he's there for. And they just sit next to each other and she's upset. And then Eva just puts her hand across and just holds her hand. And there's this unspoken language between these two mothers that no one else is ever going to know the life, understand the sort of like the life they lead, yet and uh, the love for their children that society is basically shunned. Um, so it's this sort of unspoken connection between these two women, which is just an absolutely fascinating sequence. I think it's one of my favorite moments of the film, certainly. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, that was that was one of those moments where we start realizing that, you know, despite everything, Eva, even if they sit there and don't say anything at all, <laughs> like the many, many scenes we see them just sitting across from each other, not talking. Yeah, she still shows up. She still makes an effort to show up. And I think that in the spectrum of what he's put her through and all the things that goes on, she she still sets up a room for him to come home to and and all that stuff. And uh, it's, I don't know, this movie is is a ride. It's like like a psychological ride. You come out and I just don't know. I mean, sometimes I, I think that I don't know. Sometimes I want to think that it's... Is there... I think one of the main things is that you really wonder whether... Whether in this world there's someone that that's horrible. But then at the same time, there are, like, tons of serial killers that we know about or that have been, exp- you know, have been... Have whatever, right? So it's not like an evil person doesn't exist outside. But then sometimes... Sometimes it's hard because I feel like Kevin has a lot of different things, you know. Sure, he he's, you know, he just doesn't he just doesn't jive with his mom. <laughs> but at the same time, you have this thing where I feel like his upbringing did have an effect on who he is. It kind of maybe made it worse, I think like sped up the process because at the same time, you know, he decides to do this right after they announce divorce. Uh, they pretty much, you know, they're planning to divorce and he overhears it. And then that sort of thing. And, and then at the same time, you think about it, he learns bow and arrow after that whole sick, sex, sick time. And then she reads him Robin Hood. So I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of things that are connected and, there's something so, like, I don't know if I'm just overthinking it at this point. I just feel like I need to find some purpose. Because <laughs> every time I finish watching this, I'm like, I'm so confused. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. Yeah. I can't, I can't figure it's just It's just one that really makes you think. And then you think. And then you think. And there's so much, like, you, like, one person can look at this and be like, okay, well, this is his nature. Obviously, he's a bad kid. He's just a bad seed, you know? We, we see all the evidences. Celia grew up in the same environment, like you said, and... She's fine. You know, she's she's a very sweet child. She gets she gets her eye burned out and then she's still comforting her mom. <laughs> which is which would never have happened with Kevin, right? No. I mean Kevin I think would would use it more against Eva if it yeah. um a, a, if a situation had happened the same way that he still torments her or the fact she broke his arm as a child. Yeah. And I think this is one of the most, the interesting things about the film. I mean when you first watch it I mean it's is it this like play on the bad seed sort of genre? The idea of this this you know what it is about about Kevin that just makes him 
him bad and obviously le- ultimately leads him to carry out this massacre with uh, a bow and arrow to his skull. Um, and then obviously when you can also look at it as this sort of treatise on, on, on the strains of parenthood, particularly the idea of a parent dealing with a difficult child. Um, there's certainly many of these moments that sort of resonate, resonated as being a parent and that you go through and you sort of sympathize with this sort of child uh with with either sort of journey through this you know the the loss of identity and self um that comes with being a parent the things mm-hmm. you sacrifice and and you know this longing for life that you perhaps led or that you could have perhaps you could have taken which are, are played uh, frequently throughout and at the same time it's punctuated with these beats of comedy and just really fascinating cinematography such as the scene where we go to he goes she goes to prison see him the first time in the prison and he's just ignores the whole time and just like laying out his fin- fingernail clippings uh in front of her and then we see an almost identical scene with her doing the same with a um, piece of broken egg shell that she picks up her mouth and she lays in a similar pattern on her plate so there's many there's all these like questions that you sort of like leaves you with is it sort of like that that makes you wonder why um Ramsey chooses to shoot these moments the way that she does um and the fact that she can still find she like builds all this tension all this drama around around Eva's attempts to try and find uh a way to sort of carry on with her life and she still manages to punctuate it with these moments of comedy, like when she gets uh, visited by the Mormons, and she's sort of, they're like, oh, do you know where you're headed? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going straight to hell. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> um, so which I've always just had fantastic. I mean, and this, I mean, this has to be said, I mean, this is one of Tilda Swindon's best performances. And it's a rare leading role for uh, someone we've come sort of like, used to seeing playing these sort of like standout supporting roles be it like you know as gabriel and um constantine or like in snowpiercer we just get used to playing these sort of quirky supporting characters so fred to finally have a leading role um was absolutely sort of fascinating because it was sort of like this and um only lovers left alive where i could sort of think where she sort of had the chance to really sort of shine as a leading actress and she has such great chemistry with uh, John C. Riley, who plays um, who plays the father, uh, Franklin, which I was not expecting. I mean, John C. Riley again, another surprising actor. I mean, he's mainly known for like doing like comedies and very sort of slapsticky, sort of out there sort of comedies, and here he gets like one of his rare sort of more dramatic roles, and he's just so underrated i mean it's up there with carnage's performance here and he has great chemistry with tilda swindon's character as well so the fact that i would never have put these two together as being like a believable couple yet they are completely believable throughout i totally bought them as this this couple i mean while he obviously is like this oblivious father figure i think largely due to the fact that kevin's like switches personalities when if he's around his father he's like this caring loving someone around his father and he's just an absolute nightmare around his mother so but again there's this like the playing up the childhood trope that you know yeah where your parents like say oh you're <laughs> oh you you now your father's home you behave and things like this the idea that uh you you often play bet you often act better for one parent than you do the other so 
But um, yeah, it's as it is. I found this ex this viewing a lot heavier than I did the first time I watched it. I didn't realize it was going to be as heavy as it it was. So it's certainly it it it's only a film that sort of poses more questions than answers questions the more you watch it. So because I thought I had this all figured out like after that first watching, and then I watched it the second time, it's like no, I still have questions to ask. But that's the thing is, I I think the second viewing what it does for movies like this which you already have questions in the first one, is that the second one shows a lot more details and clues that you probably miss in the first one. And that's what happened for me, at least. That I notice all these little things and these little contrasts and these little, just those little clues here and there. And then you start noticing, you know, I mean, yeah, it's like, seriously, kudos to the to the, the cast in general like <laughs> I don't know if Ezra Miller will ever get a role like that stands out as much as this one um, or even you know Tilda Swinton obviously is, is a great actress underrated as heck but I mean I think it's it, it's amazing like obviously you know John C. Riley steps kind of out of out of what we know him and into you know it's out of his comfort zone a little and this isn't funny at all (laughs) even if he tries to be like a great father and like he's his scenes are more lighthearted, kind of (laughs) um but yeah i i mean it it's it's really i don't know if i don't know of how much watch it's kind of like an american psycho situation where there's no amount of watching it which is going to kind of untangle you're never going to have an accurate answer to what the situation actually is because we were never given an answer and you can only piece it together to what you believe happened so yeah yeah i think you, you which, yeah i think like eva you come to your own piece with the situation yeah, you know, I was I, I made a I made a I made a note before we for this recording and I was like, never has a movie ever been so on point with their movie title. <laughs> we need to talk about Kevin. We literally spent what, twenty minutes talking about Kevin, so <laughs> That was a mistake in the film. Nobody ever talked about Kevin. <laughs> that was the uh, the thing. They never sat down and addressed the the issue. Um So Maybe well, that's the thing is, you know, that that's another that's another little element of the movie where if they had addressed that something was, you know, maybe mentally wrong with him, would it have changed the situation, right? You know, you never you, there, there, there's just a million things of of what ifs and maybes and is it him or is it a collective amount of things going on or whatever, right? Mm. I have to ask it as a obviously as a, a director. I mean, I've I've yet to watch any of Lynn Ramsey's other sort of films at all. I mean, certainly um, you were never never really there. Is the one that I've I keep saying I'm going to sit down and watch mainly because it's a Joaquin Phoenix, um, and I've certainly heard very good things about. Her. I've not seen her, her previous two. I mean, does this sort of inspire you to go out and see any of her other works at all? If it's less heavy than this one, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, it's just, you know, I don't... I mean, if I came across it, then yes, I probably will. But I think that the deal with some movies is that, you know, we we need to talk about Kevin. What really stood out was Tilda Swinton and Ezra Miller. 
And up until we did this season, I never really realized it was directed by a female director. So, you know, obviously with that in my mind now, I probably see if I can find some of her other movies just to see if it's the same sort of thing. But it's like I said, she had a really good set of cards in her hands. This this source material, this premise, and you know, adapting it, it it it's really great piece of piece of uh, source of material to adapt. So what would be interesting to watch would really be to look at a movie where she's the person who, you know, she, it, it's original content. There's nothing to be adapted from. It's something that maybe she wrote or she, she is directing some, what someone else wrote, but something that's just not already with some, like already, it, like that's not an adaptation pretty much. Yeah, I mean, certainly when it came to when we combined upon this season, I think it was certainly the presence of Tilda Swindon that made me want to revisit this film more than mm -hmm. the fact, as I said, of, of who was directing it. And certainly when we look compare it to the other directors of this season, I mean, obviously we had Amy Heckling with Clueless and yeah. uh, Karen Kuzama with uh, Girl Fight. I think those were directors whose work, I think, would certainly held more interest to in me than um, than than her work as um the Ramsey's work as a as a director does. Um so I said I've I mean I still have to watch you were never really there. So Yeah. But 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 you know, to to be fair, I'm not discrediting her as a director though, because we need to talk about Kevin is like I said, it's executed really well. She had a hand in the screenplay and at the same time, if you look at some of how some of the scenes are structured and how she centers her camera when it subtly pushes in or pulls out from a scene, everything is done really nice to build that kind of focus point and to really kind of elevate the movie and just using the different elements of, uh, you know, working with just choosing just choosing the right type of music and choosing the right type of sound effects and amplifying certain things a lot of things are executed really really well to kind of really elevate just the atmosphere and the tone of the movie and just kind of like that creeping feeling of of i guess there's like this unsettling feeling especially when you know you have certain focuses on certain sounds like even just the water sprinkler in the beginning and she's pulling into just curtains in the wind or whatever or just the constant police sirens, and then you have these clatters of people and all these sounds that are going on at the same time. They they really build the movie to have this kind of this the, the to have that kind of tone that it, it really needs and creates that that atmosphere that this this sort of story really you know kind of pulls you in. Well, um, yeah, I mean. In 2007, uh, Ramsey was rated number 12 in the Guardian Limited's list of the 40 best directors working at the time. And uh, LA Times columnist Mark Olson um, basically cited as being one of the leading lights of young British cinema, which I find kind of hard to believe because, I mean, <laughs> Ramsey is in her 50s. So how you know, old is old British cinema, really? So, <laughs> But, you know, he's their own. Um... I have to, well, I mean, one, obviously I mentioned already the fact that Tilda Swindon was ignored by the Academy for her performance here, and I certainly felt that it was one of the biggest snubs in a year that also saw Drive 
being snubbed as well for the Oscar. I mean, ultimately, the best uh, Oscar, the best actress at Oscar would go to uh, Natalie Portman for Black Swan. Certainly, another <laughs> engaging role to say the least. But I would still argue that uh, Swindler's role here was a lot better. Um, as it is, I mean, for yourself, I mean, do you think that this was a role that should have been recognised by the Academy, or do you think that they made the right choice in giving the Oscar to uh, Portman for Black Swan? I haven't seen Black Swan, so okay. I can't really answer that. <laughs> it's been sitting on my shelf for a while, but I haven't really seen it yet. <laughs> <laughs> if you thought this was grim viewing, that's certainly uh, another whole rabbit hole to go down, that one is. Um, with um, It's basically... Aronofsky's take on um, Satoshi Khan's Perfect Blue. Um, so that brings us to the end of tonight's episode. Thank you as always for listening. If you wish to follow us, we are both on fa- we are on Facebook and Instagram, and you can also check out our full archive of episodes at moviesandtpodcast.wordpress.com, where we also feature various writings, and we also have our Friday Film Club, where each Friday myself and Kim both pick a film to highlight. Sometimes there's a theme, sometimes there's not. Either way, it's a chance for us to explore the films that we love. Um, but Kim, where does our season take us to next? So we're heading into the next one. We're going for uh, 2014... 2014's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, directed by Anna Lily Amrapour. Yes, um, certainly one of the a first time watch for myself, and uh, certainly a unique take on the vampire film, uh, with Amrapour obviously more recently producing The Bad Batch, so very interested to go and see this, and it's also uh, by a film produced by one of my personal favourite production companies at the moment, Spectavision, um, headed up by Elijah Wood. So I'm very excited to obviously see, uh, check that one out and, uh, and and see what it's like. But um, that's obviously all coming up on our next episode, but until then, thank you as always for listening. Thank you to my co-host Kim, and we will be back next time to discuss A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Good morning, Captain! Good morning to you, you need another mule skin down on your new mud run. Can make any mule listen, or I won't exhale.
Thank you. 